The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture reading is from the book of John, chapter 13 and 14, chapter 13, 33 through 14, 11. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and that is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The word of God for the people of God. As we get into the text of the Gospel of John, I want you to imagine a door. Get a door in your minds. I don't know what the door looks like for you. Maybe you're imagining a very old, antique kind of door. Maybe it's a very sleek, modern kind of door. Maybe when you think of a door, you think of the entrance to a home or to a building, or maybe you're just envisioning your closet. 
Maybe there's a few guys in the first service who work with doors all day, and as soon as I asked it, they were like, well, I mean, are you talking inch and three-eighths or inch and three-quarters? Are we talking right-hand swing or left-hand swing, pre-hung or slab? And I was like, hey, sorry for putting you back at work. We'll save that for Monday morning. Just imagine a door. When you come upon a door, there's usually one burning curiosity in your mind. What's behind the door? Perhaps you remember that old TV game show, Let's Make a Deal. I know there's like a new version. I'm talking about the old version from the 70s with Monty Hall. What made this game show famous was you didn't know it was behind door number one or door number two or door number three. And the whole shtick was, what's behind the door? Do you want to take a risk to find out what's behind the door? For those of you that are younger, maybe you remember the movie Monsters, Inc., the whole thing was about doors, right? How do Sully and Mike Wazowski get the right door back so they can get back into the right house and the right room? There's a whole door sub-theme in that movie. In fact, our desire to see what's beyond death's door is so strong, we're willing to make people rich if they can tell us what's there. In 2004, the book 90 Minutes in Heaven soared onto the New York Times bestseller list, it purported to tell the story of one man's journey to heaven after a car accident, and that book sold over six million copies. It was followed in 2010 by the book Heaven is for Real by Nebraska's own Todd Burpo based on the near-death experience of his three-year-old son. That book sold over 10 million copies, and the film adaptation earned $100 million at the box office. Then in 2013, there was The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, different book, different boy, which sold over a million copies and then was pulled from publication after that boy, who is now a young man, admitted that the whole thing was a hoax. In the publishing world, this whole genre of literature is called heaven tourism. That's like a book category. And you can bet it won't be long before another book like that is released. After all, there is apparently a market for these things. Why do these books sell? Because there's not a single one of us in the room who knows what's beyond death. And we really want to know. Is there a heaven? Some kind of afterlife? Are we reincarnated like the Hindu religion believes? Do we become one with the universe like the Buddhists say? Is there nothing at all like our atheist friends might believe? No one knows what's beyond death's door. In fact, not even Jesus tells us what's beyond that door. But more on that in a moment. As we begin, I first of all want you to notice that the entire dialogue in this section of the Gospel of John is centered around the question of where Jesus is going. You might have heard that as we heard the text read. In John 13, Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot come. Peter asks, Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Then in 14, verse 4, you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas says, Lord, we do, not, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? The pressing question of the text is, where is Jesus going? And what does that mean for his disciples? And as we read the text, we see there are actually two goings and two comings. The first place Jesus is going is to the cross. And that is a place his disciples cannot come. The work that Jesus does there, he does alone. 
The second place Jesus is going is to the Father, and that is a place his disciples can come, but only if they know the way. There are two goings, and there are two comings. In verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. This refers to his resurrection, his coming back from death. He's going to be reunited with his disciples after his victory over the grave, and they will be filled with joy. But he also speaks here in John 14, verse 3, of another coming. He says, I will come again, that where I am, you may be also. This is speaking of Jesus' second coming at the end of history to gather his people and to bring them to where he is. So there are two goings in the passage. There are two comings spoken of in the passage and understanding that that's the question and that those are the major themes having sort of set the context of the passage. Here's a sermon outline for this morning. I want to talk about what you've been taught about heaven that's right, what you've been taught about heaven that's wrong, and why it matters. All right? What you've been taught about heaven that's right, what you've been taught about heaven that's wrong, and why it all matters. That's where we're headed this morning. So first, what you've been taught about heaven that's right. Now, maybe, if you, maybe some of you have been taught nothing about heaven, but after all, I'm preaching to a congregation of people, many of whom have a church background, many of whom have grown up in churches or who are familiar with the story of Christianity. So I assume you've been taught a certain number of things about heaven. And there are a few things that you've been taught that are right. The first is this, heaven is a real place. Most of you who are Christians or who have grown up in a church have been taught that heaven is a real place. And in fact, it is a real place. Look at John 14, verses 2 and 3, and notice the place language that Jesus uses. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Heaven is a real place. Jesus speaks very plainly and very matter-of-factly about the fact that he is going to prepare a place for his disciples. Now, it will help us be wiser students of the Bible if we understand the Bible's language about heaven. In the very first verse of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this phrase, the heavens and the earth, is biblical shorthand for everything that exists. Okay? All the created world, everything that is, is subsumed under this phrase, the heavens and the earth. So in the Bible's worldview, two things matter. The earth matters because it's the dwelling place of human beings in the sphere of God's redemptive activity. And then the heavens, which is everything outside of the earth and above the earth and beyond the earth. Now, you may be familiar with this little passage in 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven. Maybe you've read that and you're like, that's kind of weird. What is that? Well, in the Jewish way of thinking, there were three heavens. Three different ways the word heaven is used, three different things it speaks of when it's used. The first heaven is what we would call the atmosphere or the sky. Genesis 1, 7 and 8 says this, And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and God called the expanse heaven. 
Speaking of the expanse of the sky, the atmosphere. The second heaven is what we would call outer space. It's the heaven that's spoken of in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, where the psalmist says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The heavens the psalmist is looking at are the stars, the universe, everything he can see on a a cloudless night when he looks up at the galaxy and realizes the vastness of what God has made. That's the second way the Bible speaks of heaven, what we might call outer space, the universe. The third heaven is the dwelling place of God. 1 Kings 8, verse 27, Solomon, as he dedicates the temple, a building kind of like this, devoted to the worship of God, he prays this, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and listen in heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Notice that Solomon in this verse speaks of all three heavens. He says, heaven and the highest heaven can't contain you. God, you can't be contained by the sky and the atmosphere. You can't even be contained in the universe. But when I pray, listen in heaven your dwelling place. So what 1 Kings calls heaven, the dwelling place of God, Jesus calls my Father's house. God doesn't live in the sky. God doesn't live in outer space. God lives in his dwelling place, a place that transcends the earth, that speaks of something beyond the world as we know it, but that is in every way real. Heaven is a real place. So that's the first thing you've probably been taught about heaven. That's right. Heaven is a real place. The second thing you've been taught about heaven that's right is this. Jesus offers to take you there. Look at John 14, verse 3. Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. If you've ever heard the gospel message communicated, It's probably included the idea that Jesus offers to forgive your sin and take you to heaven. And that is, in fact, what Jesus offers right here in John 14, verse 3. Furthermore, in verse 6, Jesus goes on to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So not only does Jesus offer to take you to heaven, he claims to be the only one who can actually do so. New Testament scholar Gary Burge sums up how that claim feels to most of us who live in the modern world. He writes this, In general, our age views all religious systems as offering variations on the same theme. Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Christianity, Taoism, all religious systems possess historical, cultural accretions that must be removed as dispensable byproducts, but essentially they point the way to God through principles of belief and love. To stand in one of these traditions and affirm that there is something ultimate, something unrepeatable, something unparalleled, is offensive to the reasoning of our day. But this is precisely the truth claim we have in Christianity. Jesus does not merely point the way, he is the way. Jesus does not just teach us truth, he is the truth. 
He does not represent one avenue to life. He is the life. This is an exclusive claim that cannot be compromised. The human quest for God ends in Jesus Christ. Jesus offers to take you to heaven. That's the second thing you've been taught about heaven that's right. And so if your basic understanding of the gospel is heaven is a real place and Jesus offers to take his people there, that's a very good start to understanding the good news. However, there are also probably some things you've been taught about heaven that are wrong. And so let's shift now to point two, what you may have been taught about heaven that's wrong or that needs to be modified, clarified. Here's the first. Heaven is future. The common teaching about heaven is that heaven is for the future. It comes later. It's for after you die. It's about the afterlife, which comes after the life you're actually living now. And so heaven is about the future. What's wrong about that is this. Heaven is not merely future. It's present and future. And the whole point of the message of Jesus is not just about the future glory, but about what it means for that to be present in him now. Look with me at John 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? The word rooms here is the Greek word moni, which means dwelling places or abiding places. Uh, Interestingly, the Latin word is mansio, from which we get the English term mansion. And so in the King James translation of this passage, it says, in my father's house are many mansions, which has led to the idea that we all get our own Downton Abbey in heaven, right? We get a bunch of acres. We get a really big spread. It's going to be awesome. You're upgrading. Whatever you have now, it's an upgrade in heaven, Listen, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but I have to tell you this morning, you don't get a mansion in heaven, okay? That's not what the word means. In fact, the word mansion in English in the year 1611, when the King James Bible was translated, meant something quite different than what we think of when we think of mansion. The word is moni, dwelling places, from the Greek word meno, which is to abide or remain or dwell, and we're going to see a lot of that word in just a couple sermons in John 15. So keep in mind that idea of dwelling places, that's what it's talking about, and look down at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, same word, does his works. And then flip over to to verse 23 of the same chapter, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home, our dwelling place, with him. Because the father dwells in the son and because by the spirit, the father and the son dwell in the Christian, heaven is not just future. Heaven is present and future. Jesus says the whole point of being united to him in faith is that the Father is going to come and make his dwelling place in us. Same word. 
God's house is not a place we're waiting to go to. It's a place we can dwell now. Yes, there is coming a future glory. But God's house is a place we can dwell in now. Here's how Leslie Newbegin explains it. The Father's house is not another world beyond death. It is that new dwelling place of God in the Spirit, which is constituted by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The death and resurrection of Jesus will inaugurate a new possibility. Namely, that while we are still on the way, we shall have a place where we can already taste the joy of journey's end. The joy of being with the Lord. The message of the gospel is not, you can go to heaven when you die. Rather, it is, you can live life with God right now. Friends, don't miss the word that's repeated more than any other word in these 11 verses. 11 times in these 11 verses, the word that's repeated is the Father. Heaven is not about a place. It's about a person. It's about a relationship. That person, the glorious Father who dwells in the Son and who comes to dwell in us by the Spirit wants to make his home with us. Heaven is not merely future. It's present and future. Think about what we pray in the Lord's Prayer every week. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're asking is that a little bit more of heaven would be reflected here now, right? We're seeing a little bit more of God's glory and goodness and beauty of all that heaven is, that a little bit more of that beautiful, glorious kingdom would be reflected and made known here in our lives, in our world, in our community. Heaven is not merely future, it's present and future. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer. Listen, if on Sundays it feels to you a little bit like there's something about this gathering, right? Like if sometimes you come in here dejected and discouraged or beat up by a long week, and it feels like, man, there's something about being here in a room devoted to the worship of God with people who are worshiping God and praising God and praying to God and hearing the word of God. If it feels to you like, man, there's something about coming into that room that's kind of powerful and encouraging, like something's happening there. It does something for my soul and for my being, that I don't know what it is, but it's just good. If you've ever had that feeling, the reason is because Sundays, when the people of God gather together, are kind of a little foretaste of heaven. Like something of the heavenly kingdom is getting expressed in this room, even despite all of our dysfunction and sin and brokenness and weakness. And that's why it feels powerful to be among the people of God, because Heaven isn't just future. It's present and future, and we get a little foretaste of it when we gather together. So what you've been taught about heaven that's perhaps wrong is that heaven is not just future. It is present and future. Jesus says, yes, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but also me and my Father want to come and dwell with you now. The second thing you've been taught about heaven that's probably wrong is that heaven is a destination. The common teaching about heaven is that it is a destination. 
It's a place we want to end up when we die. So just tell me where to buy the ticket and I'll buy it and I'll put it somewhere safe. And then when that glory train comes for me, I'll punch my ticket and climb on board. Listen, heaven is not merely a destination. It is also a way. Look again at John 14, verses 4 through 6. You know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have you ever been on a surprise trip? Like one of those trips where a friend or a family member comes and says, hey, I'm taking you somewhere, get in, it's a surprise. Some of you probably love that. Some of you probably don't love that, right? But my wife, Lee, does not love surprise trips. Uh, she, loves be, she loves the idea of being surprised, but does not love, hey, we're going somewhere, I'm not going to tell you where it is. I don't actually love that either. So I came home a few months ago, I'd been to a new restaurant, and I was like, hey, I'm going to take Lee there and surprise her. I came home, I was like, hey, babe, we're going out. It's a surprise. First thing she asked is, uh, what should I wear? I was like, what you have on is fine. She's like, but really, like, where are we going? Like, I'm not just going to take your word for it. Like, where are we going? I was like, no, it's a surprise. Get in the car. So we get in the car. We're driving. And, you know, like, she's like, oh, I know where we're going. It's like, no, you don't know where we're going. You're just trying to get me to tell you where we're going. She's like, oh, no, I, I know where we're going. I was like, I promise you, you don't know where we're going. Right? But this is her way of trying to sort of, like, get out of me. Hey, where are we going? Because though many of us like the idea of being surprised, the idea of being on a journey where we don't know the destination. Sometimes we don't love that so much, right? And Thomas is here expressing the same sentiment. Hey, Jesus, if I don't know the destination, that's cool that you're saying we know where you're going. We actually don't know. So if I don't know the destination, how can I know the way? And how can I be confident that I'm on the right way? And Jesus answers, verse 6, I am the way. Heaven is not merely a destination, it's a way. And, and here's much of the problem in American Christianity. If there's something about Christianity in America that maybe you're tapping around the edges of something that bothers you, but you don't know why, here's what much of it might be. Many people want to use Jesus to get to heaven it's just that the heaven they want has nothing to do with Jesus and his kingdom. What many people desire in their desire for heaven is just sort of a better version of the American dream, right? I kind of want life to be easy. I want everything I want to be realized. I want to be prosperous and successful. I want to be reunited with people I love. I don't want to have any more pain and suffering and sadness. You can want to go to heaven for entirely selfish reasons that have nothing to do with loving the God that dwells there. Heaven, Jesus is telling us, is about fellowship with the Father. Look again at verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to heaven except through me. Is that what it says? Oh, sorry, I read that wrong. No one comes to who? The Father 
except through me. Notice he does not use the language of a destination. He uses the language of a person. Heaven is not merely a destination. It's a way, a way of fellowship with the Father, of delight in God, of a life existing in communion with God, transformed by the presence of God. There's a famous quote from C.S. Lewis about hell where he writes this, it is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. John is saying something similar about heaven. He's saying, hey, it's not just a question of going to heaven. It's the reality that when we're united to Jesus, something of heaven begins to grow in us even now. So, what have we been taught about heaven that's wrong? Well, heaven is not merely future, it's present and future. And heaven is not merely a destination, someplace we need a ticket to. It's a way of being and knowing, living in communion with God that begins even now. So let's talk finally about why it matters. John 14, verse 6 is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. It's one of those verses that if you've ever um, memorized Scripture, this has probably been one you have stored away in memory. Uh, when I was in college, I did the Navigator's Topical Memory System, and I think this is like the fifth verse that you memorize, this verse, because it's so foundational to the Bible's way of thinking. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Gary Burge, scholar of the New Testament, says this is the premier expression of John's theology. If you want to know what does the gospel of John have to say in one verse, it's this. So I want to conclude by bringing us back to this verse. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think this verse is easily misunderstood in this way. I think many of us hear this verse saying or interpret this verse to mean that Jesus is the door we have to pass through to get to heaven and to the Father. Which is why Philip's next statement makes sense. Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. In other words, hey Jesus, if you could just show us what's on the other side of the door, then we could have courage and confidence in following you. Notice Jesus' response, verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the amazing truth at the heart of Christianity. Instead of telling us what's on the other side of the door, God himself has stepped through the door and come to us in the person of Jesus. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, says the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the truth at the heart of Christianity. That God himself was in Christ, that the Father has come to us in the Son in order to bring us to himself. 
I mean, look at the amazing Trinitarian theology that's here. Jesus is saying in verses 10 and 11, I am in the Father. The Father is in me. The Father who dwells in me does his works. You see in the language there is a a distinction between the Father and the Son, and yet there is an inseparable unity. Here's how St. Augustine put it. The Father was not born of the Virgin, and yet this birth of the Son was the work of both Father and Son. The Father did not suffer on the cross, and yet the passion of the Son was the work of both Father and Son. The Father did not rise again from the dead, and yet the resurrection of the Son was the work of both Father and Son. You have the persons quite distinct, and yet they're working inseparable. So let us never say that the Father worked anything without the Son, nor the Son anything without the Father. See, the profound truth at the heart of Christianity is that God himself was and is present in Christ. The Father has come to us in the Son. If that is true, then of course Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. How could it be otherwise? If the divine has come to be with us and dwell among us in the person of Jesus, how could it be otherwise? So listen, if you're not a Christian here this morning, the question you should be asking is not, do all roads lead to heaven or do they not? The question you should be asking is, was God present in Jesus Christ? Has God come to earth? If Jesus was just a man, then he's just like every other religious leader and teacher who has walked the earth. But if he is in the Father and the Father is in him, that's a totally different thing. Jesus is not saying he's the door come through him to get to heaven. Jesus is saying, he is the very presence of God. And if you have met him, then you have met the Father. And the only possible, reasonable response is to fall down and worship him. To bow the knee to him. To sing to him. To praise him. To be awed by him. To humble yourself before him. To give your life to him. So let's bow our hearts in worship and in prayer together now. Jesus, we hear you say this morning, I am the way and the truth and the life. And our hearts bow in worship. We humble ourselves before you, acknowledging that you are in the Father and the Father is in you that you have not just shown us the Father. You are the presence, the incarnation of the very life of God in time and space and history. So we ask that you would renew in our hearts a sense of worship, a sense of joy, a sense of adoration. Sense that you would, would you remind us of the uniqueness and the beauty and the glory of your incarnation. And with your stumbling disciples who get it but don't get it, we are just like them. We get it and we don't get it. 
So would you come to us again this morning and dwell among us and with us? Help us hear your word. Help us know your presence. Help us live lives that are given over in love and adoration and service to you. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.